2: This episode of Harry Potter in the Sacred Text is brought to you by the new podcast, Anomaly.
1: Vanessa, one of my favorite YouTube holes to go down is like role play fantasy tabletop multiplayer games where I don't really know any of the people playing, but I love watching them have an adventure.
2: Well, Casper, then you would love Anomaly. It's a role-playing meditation podcast that takes you into a world of magic and fantasy. You'll be invited to imagine yourself in scenarios such as learning to cast a tranquility spell or exploring a land once vanquished by a dragon, but all connected by a shared mythology.
1: I am genuinely going to download this right now. This sounds amazing.
2: (laughs) This podcast combines traits of a great dungeon master and those of a talented meditation guide, weaving tales of fantasy that stretch the imagination while you learn to center yourself, offer forgiveness, find confidence, and relieve stress. This is available now on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you are listening to this podcast right now. It's Anomaly spelled with an I-E at the end and not a Y. Go to S-E-E-K-A-N-O-M-A- L-I-E dot com. That's SeekAnomaly.com to find out more. Chapter 21, The Eye of the Snake. Hermione plowed her way back to Hagrid's cabin through two feet of snow on Sunday morning. Harry and Ron wanted to go with her, but their mountain of homework had reached an alarming height again, so they grudgingly remained in the common room, trying to ignore the gleeful shouts drifting up from the grounds outside. I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
1: And I'm Matt Potts.
2: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So Matt, before you tell your wonderful opening story, I just want to let people know that in our Patreon perk, we are going to talk about what creatures we would want to meet if Hagrid was there to run interference. So we see in this chapter, students get to meet Thestrals. And like, who would we want to meet? I'm very curious as to your answer.
1: Yeah, it's not absolutely straightforward, right? Because Hagrid is not necessarily a dependable protector. His gauging of risk is not necessarily the same as mine. So this is a good question. I look forward to having this conversation with you.
2: Same with me. And everybody, you can hear this conversation at patreon.com slash harrypottersacredtext, or you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and subscribe and get ad-free episodes and feel really good about yourself that you are keeping your New Year's resolution to support the arts more. Matt, you are telling a story today on the theme of care. What story do you have?
1: So, Vanessa, as you know, for many years, I commuted to Cambridge from about an hour and a half away when traffic was good. Actually, traffic was often worse because I would travel during rush hour when traffic is famously bad. Hmm. And so it was a long commute. And sometimes, you know, if there were storms or if there were, you know, the public transportation system is not especially reliable, there would be, you know, delays or I might miss a bus and have to catch the next bus or whatever. And when I started this habit of commuting two to three days a week, I would keep Colette, my lovely spouse, incredibly informed, like lots of details, everything that's going on. Just got on the red line on my way, you know, just got on the train. Bus was a few minutes late, but on it. Okay. Okay. Like, I would just give updates throughout the day for where I was and what I was doing. Yeah. Imagining that Colette was, you know, wondering, are you okay? Did you make it to the train station? Is your bus, did your bus, you know, drive off the side of a bridge? (laughs) Or have you safely arrived at your destination? Because I thought that she would want to know this. And I just, I would text her all these things. And one time I got home. Very thoughtful of me. One time I got home from a long day commuting, having told her that I would be late, and then because there was traffic, but then the traffic cleared, so I was not be on time, and there was traffic again, and I said, oh, I'm gonna be late, because there's traffic, but then the traffic cleared again, and I was on time. So I sent her several updates on the drive home, and when I got home, she said, you know, you don't need to text me all day with your whereabouts, because no news is good news. And this is what I learned. In her family growing up, the policy in her family was, no news is good news. If I don't hear from you, I'm going to assume everything is going okay. And that you will reach out if and only if there is a problem and you need some assistance or help for me or if I should be concerned. Otherwise, I'm not going to be concerned. Vanessa, this is very different from the the way things worked in my family.
2: I like I cannot tap into that logic.
1: I know, right? In my family, it was like, call before you leave. Yeah. Call on your way. Call when you get there. Yeah. And then call again after you get there to let it make sure that it wasn't an imposter who kidnapped you, <laughs> pretending to be you telling us you got there. Right. It was call as many times as possible because we will be worrying about you yeah. and you should allay our concerns. And it's just this interesting (laughs) sort of family tradition and dynamic. In one family, like not hearing from a person is a sign that all is well. (laughs) In my family, not hearing from a person is a sign that they have met an untimely demise. And so call as often as possible, text as often as possible. The reason I tell this story about care is I actually encountered a very, very interesting etymology. If I can... Do a mashup of etymology corner and my story today, Please. which is that I was assuming when I investigated the etymology of the word care that it would derive from the Latin word caritas, which means love. That makes sense, right? Care sounds like caritas, love like you love someone, so you care if they are if their bus is driving off the side of a bridge, right? Sure. You want to hear from them again. It turns out that care actually comes from a Germanic root, an Old English word, which is caru or kieru which means to worry, or to sorrow, or to have grief. I
0: care so much!
1: (laughs) Right, (laughs) exactly. So it's actually about like, what causes you worry? Like, what do you worry about? (laughs) And this became like the perfect example, like this different dynamic between our two family histories or family traditions, which is that like, for one family, concern only arises if you do hear from somebody. And my family, concern arises if you don't. And part of our early relationship, especially when I was commuting, and especially when she started doing pilgrimages with you, yeah. and she'd go off to England with you for a wonderful pilgrimage, and I'd hear from her only once a day, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'd be like, what is going on the rest of the day? Meanwhile, you're sending me texts all day. <laughs> We're okay. Everything's going fine. And Colette sending me no texts. Because for her, no news is good news.
2: <laughs> wow, Matt. I love that etymology. I just care so much. I just care so much. care so much. You're very caring. I'm a caring. very caring person. Peter is like you and I. He's an over communicator or an appropriate amount of communicator about yeah. his commute.
0: An, an, an adequate communicator. An
2: adequate communicator about his That's commute. Right. <laughs> and if he is 10 minutes later than I think he's going to be, I s- get in the car and start tracing where he might be, like where he died on the route. Right. And right. I have never made it all the way to the car in this effort, but I have grabbed the car keys and been like, yeah. that's it. We're going to go look for his dead body now. And right. then I either hear from him or he shows up at home. Yeah. And I will say, every time he's caught me at this, he's like, thank you, because I do know you would find me. <laughs> and I was like, That's right. I would.
1: <laughs> that's right.
2: Well Matt, you also care so much about the 30 second recap?
1: I do. I it's just <laughs> there's nothing I care about more on these episodes than the 30 second recap.
2: Well, I will go first. Can I catch you in? Please.
1: All right, here we go. Three, two, one, go.
2: So, Hermione is very anxious because Umbridge is clearly going to go to Hagrid's class. So, she tries to prepare Hagrid for to teach a good lesson. And then, of course, Umbridge shows up and finds a way to make Hagrid seem like a really bad teacher, even a worse teacher than he is. And she treats him like he's stupid. And it's really horrible. But also, they have the last DA practice before Christmas. And Cho kisses Harry. And that's very cute. And Ron is very emotionally mature about it. And Hermione is like, oh, my God. Feelings are complicated. Also, she writes to Crum.
1: Was that thirty seconds? Yes. Holy cow.
2: Did that go by that fast? That was amazing.
1: It went by very fast. Honestly, I was feeling very comfortable about the thirty second recap today. Uh huh. And now I am finding myself caring very much because, <laughs> because that went so quickly for you. Okay. I think All you're right.
2: you're gonna be amazing.
1: I'll I'll do my best.
2: On your mark, get set, go.
1: So her mind is trying to help Hagrid and she goes, but she's not sure Hagrid is Taking the the help and then they there's Dumbledore's army and they they go and they practice and they're doing very well and Harry's very proud and then Cho kisses him and he doesn't know what happened and he goes and he talks to uh, Hermione and and Ron in the common room and Hermione is very perspicacious about what the emotions were and then uh, and then uh, he goes to sleep and then he has a very a very bad dream uh, with the eyes of a snake and then he sees that that Arthur Weasley has been hurt and he wakes up and he says Arthur Weasley has been hurt and then no the one believes him but McGonagall believes him and she says let's go talk to the headmaster.
2: Precipicacious?
1: perspicacious
2: perspicacious
1: i hope it's a word is it a word i invented in the in the haze of having
2: having a ready insight into an understanding of things is that right
1: that sounds like perspicacious yeah okay don't you think that she showed a great deal of perspicacity
2: absolutely she did i just didn't know that word i was not perspicacious on the word
1: maybe that should be our theme for next time We could read a chapter through the theme of perspicacity.
2: Oh, my God. I would love if we also did vocab words for the rest of Harry (laughs) Potter and the Sacred Text. So, Matt, I think if we are to give, like, the care etymology, like, platonic ideal of care award to a character in this chapter, it would go to Hermione Jean Granger. Even just in the opening sentence, we see the beginning of this, that she is like trudging through the snow, even though Hagrid did not ask her to do this, to go and help Hagrid write his lesson plans because she knows that Umbridge is going to come and supervise his lessons. And she's concerned about Hagrid's teaching and how it will show in front of Umbridge. And that amount of care really strikes me as being a care about worry But there are other things in addition to worry that are happening here, right? She's not just worried Hagrid will get fired. She also hates Umbridge and is like trying to upend anything that is Umbridge's sort of goal at Hogwarts.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. She's not just concerned about Hagrid. She's also concerned about Hogwarts and like keeping an ally on the teaching staff. Right, Right. keeping someone like Hagrid around. I mean, Grubbly Plank is a good Care of Magical Creatures teacher, but she wants Hagrid, an ally of Dumbledore, on staff. I think. Yeah, and that's absolutely what she's doing. And so you can see here how a root word, which originates in a feeling of worry or concern, is closely linked to what I wanted the etymology to be, which is like loving, loving action. Because what does the form the like the outward practical form of Hermione's worry take in this chapter, at least the beginning of this chapter, the form it takes is her trudging through the snow and spending a lot of hours when she could be studying and working on her own work, like helping Hagrid develop his lesson plans. Right. And so like she's doing like outward acts that we would recognize as loving or caring in that sense. But what drives it is a is a deep concern about Hagrid, about his teaching, about his review from Umbridge, and also a concern about Umbridge's place at Hogwarts and the place of all the allies of Dumbledore at Hogwarts. Also, Hagrid's not doing well. It's clear to them he's not doing well. Yeah. It's not just that she thinks Hagrid isn't the kind of care of magical creatures teacher who might live up to Umbridge's particular standards. But also, like he's clearly ailing. He's been through something he's still suffering new injuries like she's also worried about all this and recognizes that he doesn't seem to be in a place for him to do this on his own anyway
2: yeah the bruises and cuts are very alarming to her and the boys they're just like what is actually going on here and yeah i think helping someone out it's just so active that's what i love about it right it's like Okay, some like you're in pain, you've been gone, you're not going to be good at this. I'm going to come and help. But the other thing yeah. that I think is great is like she sort of says, "I can't make him teach it though." <laughs> like, yeah. I
0: right. don't know
2: what he's going to do. I did everything I could. I'm not sure he's going to listen to me. I like encourage him to just keep going with grubbly Plank's lessons, but you can't yep. control him. And I think that that's, you know, such a big part of Worry and care is, like, realizing that you can't actually control the whole situation that someone else is in. And caring isn't necessarily including any action. It's just, like, sitting and caring and sometimes letting go.
1: Yeah, that's why we worry, right? Because we don't have control over other people or how the world treats other people. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about when I was thinking about this example was to what degree is showing care in the way that hermione is doing it now like not recognizing the autonomy or the independence of the other person right Right. one could argue that that the kind of overprotectiveness my parents showed to me wanting me to call all the time was not necessarily the best thing for me like there's a there's a degree to which you allow people to have freedom to make their own mistakes the point you just raised is the one that makes me think no hermione's not she hasn't stepped over into that area yet right like She's trudging over there not because she thinks she knows more about magical creatures than Hagrid does, although she might in some technical respects.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: She also, I think, knows that Hagrid has a talent with creatures that, and a gift and an affinity and affection for them that she's not pretending to have. She just knows Umbridge. Like right. She knows that that Hagrid doesn't know Umbridge, and she's going there not because she's saying, like, oh, I know more about creatures than you, Hagrid, and can teach your classes better than you which maybe is the way he's taking it because he seems kind of dismissive. It's because, no, I know Umbridge better than you. You don't know what it's like here. And there's that point at which he says like, I can't convince him of this thing he doesn't know. And he's gonna have to teach it himself and learn himself who Umbridge is and what she represents. And so like, that's her like kind of, I think, navigating this in a careful and appropriate way. Like I'm helping him where I can with what I know, but not pretending to be the Care of Magical Creatures instructor when Hagrid remains so.
2: I think that that's when caring can become so painful, right? When like you feel as though you know better for someone and you can't control them. I'm just reading a novel that's a lot about addiction. Yeah, Jesse's novel, Transcendent Kingdom. And there's a lot of description of losing someone to addiction Hmm. and just that feeling of like, I worry and I care. And yet, I literally can't do this for you which i think might explain why hermione gets so mad in the care of magical creatures lesson and she brilliantly in her emotional maturity isn't mad at hagrid right yeah which i think would be easy for her to do right so they they go down a care of magical creatures the next day and Hagrid is not following one of the lesson plans that Hermione wrote. He's not heeding any of her advice, but he's giving this really great lesson. But he he leads all of the students into the Forbidden Forest, which is aptly named, and is showing them Thestrals, which is like technically dangerous, even though Hagrid knows better, right? Hagrid's like, they're not actually dangerous. They're not actually omens of bad things. Like These are all just bad stereotypes about Thestrals, but also we don't necessarily trust Hagrid's call on these things. But uh, like you said, Hermione knows Umbridge and knows that Umbridge wouldn't approve of this. But as Umbridge is there and is like docking Hagrid all these points and starting so demeaningly to talk to Hagrid as if he's stupid, Hermione directs her anger in the right way, right? She gets mad at Umbridge. Whereas I think that I in those situations am often emotionally immature enough to be mad at the person who's not <laughs> not letting me control them, right? Like, yeah. but I set up a lesson plan. Like I told you this is what was gonna happen, Hagrid. Why wouldn't you listen to me? When of course Hagrid's doing what Hagrid always did, the problem here is Umbridge, not Hagrid. And I yeah. just think that shows such a maturity to Hermione's care.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it also shows like the kind of effective complexity of care. I think that when we associate it with like loving kindness, we associate it with kind of warm and fuzzy feelings. But like right. anger is a feeling that goes along with worry and concern. And what, again, what Hermione does so well here and shows such maturity here is exactly what you say, like not, not misdirecting her anger to the person that you are more allowed to be angry with. Right. That actually is a pretty difficult emotional skill. I can think of professional things in the last three months just in my job where, like, I advised people to do one thing and they didn't really pay attention to me. And then things blew up. And I'm like, why didn't you listen? Like, you should have listened. But actually, that's not what the world needs right now. It's for all of us to respond to the thing as it is. And Hermione's already showing that at the age of 15.
2: Yeah. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Quality sleep
3: is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number.
2: Matt, what do you make of the fact that at the beginning of the chapter, we have these opening lines in which Hermione is trudging through two feet of snow to get back from Hagrid, and later in the chapter, she is going to melt snow for she, Ron, and Harry to walk from Hagrid's hut to the greenhouses? I'm just thinking about that in terms of maybe not the etymological definition of care, but the one that we use now of like. It just makes sense to me that, like, you'll put in the effort if someone else is there, but if it's just you, right, like, you're just like, it's fine, I'll just trudge through the snow. And what that means about, like, this, you know, I think now more confusing than ever term of self-care of, like, what does it mean to (laughs) treat yourself with the same love that you would treat your best friend? Yeah. And I was just thinking about that, you know, it our winter break time just ended, and while the kids were here, like, I was cooking and cleaning the kitchen three times a day. Peter obviously, you know, did some too, but like, you know, it was just like full, hearty meals for everything. And then if I'm home alone, I'm like yogurt, it's a great meal.
3: Yeah.
2: And like <laughs> is that actually me loving myself cuz then I don't have to put through the effort of <laughs> cooking yeah. and cleaning? Yeah. But like, why don't we believe that we are like deserving of the same love that we show other people, which I think yeah. should be the definition of self-care? It's just like literally caring yeah. about yourself. But anyway, I'm wondering what you make of that moment with Hermione.
1: That's a really great point. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it's conscious No, in Hermione. She doesn't even think of it when she's walking over. Right. Right? But then she sees Harry and Ron like trudging through snow and says, oh, they, you know, let's let's melt the snow for them. I don't know. I think maybe this just speaks to the value of good and supportive and trusted community. Right? Because yeah. if you have a network of people who all have those kinds of dispositions where – If this is how we are, that we tend to be empathic in ways that we anticipate others' sufferings before we anticipate our own, then what you need to do is surround yourself with people like that who will melt the snow for you on there as you walk your path. It's probably why communities one of the reasons why community can be valuable. I I don't know.
2: Also, potentially now she'll be like, oh, I could do that for myself, too. Yeah. Right. Like, and next time she walks through the snow, be like, why don't I just melt the snow for me?
1: Yeah. Before we depart Care of Magical Creatures class, I just wanted to, like, raise one more attention about this whole idea of care. I mean, the name of the class is Care of Magical Creatures, right? And it seems to me that Hagrid is really leaning into the loving-kindness sense of care. He Mm -hmm. loves these magical creatures so much. It doesn't matter how dangerous they are, he loves them so much. And I think he doesn't worry about them enough. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that's really emerging, I mean, you know, a few books ago when Buckbeak nipped... Malfoy we were like whatever Malfoy was being reckless it wasn't really Hagrid's fault but as time passes you know the blast ended scruts. So we're getting the sense that actually Hagrid loves these creatures so much he's not good at recognizing the actual danger they pose to these students and he does put students into situations that maybe they shouldn't be in like he's not caring enough for the students in the sense of worrying Right? right. He's not concerned enough about their welfare. And even in this chapter where Hermione says, you know, the Thestrals were a reasonable choice. They're like any WT level. Right. Like that's still like several years ahead. Like it's still, <laughs> they're commending Hagrid for yeah. having the amount of care and concern that would be adequate for students who were three or four years older than they are, right? I mean, there is this tension here where he cares so much in one direction that he is not caring enough right. in in the other direction. Uh, you know. I'm, and I'm fiddling with the two different definitions of care there, but it's a tension that's going on and it's always going on with Hagrid. If he has a fault, it's because he cares too much. And that kind of keeps him from recognizing where risks to himself or to others might lie.
2: Yes, I love all of that. And he's not doing at minimum like good PR for these magical creatures, right? Like at the end, you're not like, yes, we should protect the forest to protect blast-ended scroots because, so it's like not strategic caring of the creatures either. Which is one of the reasons why you would have a class like Care of Magical Creatures is to get people invested in their well-being. And if a creature is like burning you, you're going to be less invested in its (laughs) well-being. It's just so hard to find any fault with it because it seems so clear that Hagrid just sees the like soul in everything and is like, sort of in this like way that I can only use God language for of like, you deserve God's love just as much as anything else, right? Like, and there's just like such a beautiful advocacy in that. I think he's just in the wrong job. I don't want Hagrid to change. Because I want someone out there who's like, no, Thestrals are beautiful. And and like, oh my God, he has this relationship with them, right? Like there's this line where he says like the the smell of the meat will attract them, but like they'll want to know it's me. So like let me let them know it's meat. Like that's a reciprocal, like deeply bonded relationship that he's been working on for decades. And But yeah, no, he should not. The psychological trauma of this, of like outing Neville and Harry and this one other kid for having seen death. Like, it's just like a yeah. bad vibe. It's a really bad vibe.
1: Yeah, I, I think yeah, I hadn't really thought of this, but you're right. He's he, he's the gamekeeper. He was meant to be the gamekeeper. Yeah. Like Grubbly Plank is the professor. He's the gamekeeper. Like, because yeah. he loves them in a way which is not about instruction or students or whatever. It's just caring for them. Worrying about them, give, doing acts of loving kindness, whichever definition, in a way where it's not conflicted by what he needs to teach students, right? And, right. And that was what he was. He was always the gamekeeper, and that's what he should be meant to be. Yeah. Yeah, that's right.
2: It's so hard.
1: But let's, let's transition to another moment of that has to do with care in this in this chapter, and we'll continue talking about Hermione if that's okay. So I guess Harry and Cho have an intimate moment in the Room Requirement. But, it, but an emotionally complicated one, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Harry is confused about it. I think Harry would probably be confused about it regardless. I mean, this yes. is the first time I believe that at least we have a record of him kissing anybody. Mm-hmm. And it's also someone that he has had these kind of feelings for or towards for quite some while.
2: Fanciful feelings. Fanciful
1: feelings, but also very complicated because of Cedric and all the things that we don't need to tell our listeners, right? And I think Harry doesn't realize that he is feeling those things. And, and we don't know if Cho is self aware of the fact that she is feeling those things, but outwardly, because she's very emotional, because she's crying, it's clear that she's feeling these things. And she does name Cedric specifically to Harry. So, right? So it's a very complicated thing. And the paragraph in this chapter, where Hermione just kind of -of matter-of-factly, and in very direct and literal language, describes what everyone is feeling... (laughs) Right. And all the complicated emotions, which are overlapping and contradicting each other, but also contributing to one another. Like she just says it all in about 15 seconds in a very direct paragraph. It's one of my favorite moments in this book when Hermione just like totally understands. She like is not only great at like pedagogy for professors who should know their own pedagogy (laughs) or understanding the politics of the Hogwarts staff room, she's also great at just navigating the complexities of the human heart and can articulate all those complexities in a single paragraph.
2: And what's so great about it is that clearly some of the information is like actual intel, right? Where she's either spoken yeah. to Cho or to someone who knows Cho well, right? When she's like, and she's afraid that she's going to get kicked off of the quidditch team because her flying has gotten worse. Hermione's not intuiting that, <laughs> right? right? But there are other things that she is Clearly intuiting. And even if she's wrong, these are all the right worries. Like these are all the right things to care about. Even if it isn't necessarily completely front of mind for Cho to feel like maybe I'm a little bit betraying Cedric by starting to date Harry and what are people going to think of me? Like worrying, caring about a young woman whose boyfriend was murdered and being at a school where that is actively being like – erased from common memory even if she's wrong she's close yeah and I think often we let a fear of not caring exactly perfectly get in the way of us caring like well
1: yeah I think one of the things that's so beautiful about like Hermione's matter-of-fact description of this moment is how unconcerned she is Right. I mean, that's kind of going against our etymological definition of, of what care is right now. But she sees all of Cho's worries or likely worries pretty clearly. But then she's like, yeah, that's appropriate. Yeah, Like, I'm not intimidated by that. You shouldn't be intimidated by that. This is what it means to have feelings and be a person. Of course, she's feeling all these things. Don't worry about that. Just, you know, do your thing, whatever. I mean, she's just like, there's something about how matter of fact she is about like, this is how the human heart works. Of course she's crying when she kisses you. Of course she likes you. Of course you like her. So what are you going to do next? Right? It's not, there's not a lot of like worry about why she was crying or how you're feeling. It's like, it feels weird and messy because that's what it means to feel things deeply. So what's next, right? That kind of awareness of all the worries leading her to be, absolutely unconcerned about them is another beautifully emotionally mature thing that she does in this chapter.
2: So Matt, I have like a faint memory of recording this chapter, however many years ago it was, and being really disturbed by Ron in this chapter. So Harry comes back having kissed Cho and Ron is like, where were you? And then he gets this information that Harry and Cho kissed And I just remember being very upset about the word triumphant. It says that Ron goes, yes, and makes a triumphant gesture with his fist and starts laughing. And I remember being very disturbed by that. And I was not disturbed by it this time. In fact, I found this to be kind of caring and lighthearted and loving. And obviously not like talking about women in the, the best way, like, Again, triumph is, seems like a weird word, but I don't know. I feel like Ron is trying to be caring and well, actually more. I think Ron is genuinely caring of Harry in this moment and like loves Harry and wants to know what happened and how he feels about it. I found him kind of charming and adorable upon this read.
1: Yeah, even as I, I don't know if I find him charming, I don't find him deeply offensive. I find him kind of stupid. Sure. And I guess there are moments when you can find stupidity charming, right? But but for <laughs> me it seems like he's speaking out of ignorance and curiosity, which is which is what you're saying, right? I I think
2: And love.
1: And love, that's right. I mean, I think he's excited. For Harry. I think he's excited for Harry. He think I, he knows that Harry has had a crush on Cho and he's glad that their relationship has progressed in the conventional ways that romantic relationships progress. But there's also a lot of just kind of Ignorance and curiosity, like, wouldn't it make her feel better to have k- kissed anybody? Right? Like, that's that's someone who's never kissed anybody who's, who asked that question. <laughs> right? Because if you kissed anybody, you've had a bad kiss also. Right? Or a kiss that didn't make you feel better. Right? And so that's cute because it's a person who thinks he knows, but is revealing in acting like he knows that he knows nothing. And that can be endearing or charming, I guess, <laughs> if we're feeling charitable or generous towards A person, but just the the form it takes here is a little bit like, if you're going to speak whereof you know not, (laughs) then try not to speak whereof you know not about, you know, issues of gender and race and identity and power. (laughs) Because those are the places where your ignorance can be offensive. Right. So he's walking a line here, I'd say. And so is Harry, to be fair. Just as he's falling asleep and before he has these dreams, which are not actually dreams, but visions, one of his final thoughts is how, instead of divination, they ought to be teaching how girls' brains work at Hogwarts. So Harry's kind of in the same place as Ron. Again, walking the line between endearing and (laughs) off-putting.
2: I think it can be hard to like want to be better at certain things and not know how to be better at them. And that is where a lot of people make really big mistakes. And usually there are very simple ways that you can actually get better. And like, if Harry actually wanted to know how girl's brains work, he could ask Cho like what her thoughts and feelings were, right? Like there is actually a very simple solution to this. But I think we get caught up in our own heads and are like, I don't even know how to do this. So this is a dangerous moment that they're in, I think, but they are caring. They are at least caring.
1: This is where they're being too selfish, right? And that's that's developmentally appropriate for a teenager. But all the care that Ron and Harry have is about Harry and what right. happened to Harry. And they care about... Cho's crying only insofar as it suggests what it means for Harry <laughs> totally, right? and that's why they're not caring enough. They care enough for Harry. They're right. not caring enough about what Cho's going through, which is why Hermione is kind of the salve to this conversation because she's like, oh, here's what Cho's going through, right morons Idiots. Like, just here's let me let me describe it to you. This is all reasonable now deal with it, yeah. So, now it's time for our sacred reading practice. This week, we were returning to sacred imagination, which is Woo-hoo. not a practice we have done in a while. The practice of uh, using a sacred imagination or using one sacred imagination when encountering a text comes out of Jesuit spiritual lineage, which is a Roman Catholic order and spirituality. And in sacred imagination, this originally arose by the way the Jesuits would read the Gospels, but it's you try to like really inhabit the scene, you read the scene carefully and slowly, and instead of just reading through it for information, you try to actually come into the scene in a very direct and, and imminent way. It works especially well for narrative texts because you know narrative texts try to draw you in in that way. And one of the things that we do on the podcast is really try to pay attention to some of the senses that we have, which maybe aren't explicitly described, in the passage. So like, what are you smelling? What are you feeling? What are you hearing? Which may not be necessarily on the page, but which if you inhabit it with your imagination, you might be able to discern. So the passage that we have selected for today comes during Care of Magical Creatures class. They are in the Forbidden Forest and they have just encountered the Thestrals. So here's the passage. Immensely pleased to feel that he was at last going to understand the mystery of these horses, Harry raised his hand. Hagrid nodded at him. Yeah, yeah. I knew you'd be able to, Harry, he said seriously. And you too, Neville, a. And... Excuse me, said Malfoy in a sneering voice, but what exactly are we supposed to be seeing? For an answer, Hagrid pointed at the cow carcass on the ground. The whole class stared at it for a few seconds, then several people gasped, and Parvati squealed. Harry understood why. Bits of flesh stripping themselves away from the bones and vanishing into thin air had to look very odd indeed. "'What's doing it?' Parvati demanded in a terrified voice, retreating behind the nearest tree. "'What's eating it?' "'Vestrals,' said Hagrid proudly, and Hermione gave a soft "'Oh!' of comprehension at Harry's shoulder. "'Hogwarts has got a whole herd of them in here. "'Now who knows?' "'But they're really, really unlucky,' interrupted Parvati, looking alarmed. "'They're supposed to bring all sorts of horrible misfortune "'on people who see them. "'Professor Trelawney told me once.' "'No, no, no,' said Hagrid, chuckling.' that's just superstition, that is. They aren't unlucky. They're dead clever and useful. Of course, this lot don't get a lot of work. It's mainly just pulling the school carriages unless Dumbledore's taken a long journey and don't want to apparate. And here's another couple, look. Two more horses came quietly out of the trees, one of them passing very close to poverty, who shivered and pressed herself closer to the tree, saying, I think I felt something. I think it's near me. Don't worry, it won't hurt you, said Hagrid patiently right now. Who can tell me why some of you can see him and some can't? Hermione raised her hand. Go on then, said Hagrid, beaming at her. The only people who can see Thestrals, she said, are people who have seen death. That's exactly right, said Hagrid solemnly. Ten points to Gryffindor. So Vanessa, what were you experiencing in your return to the woods?
2: Our listeners may or may not know this. I recently had ankle surgery, and so I'm in a boot And that means I can't, I'm not allowed to go to the woods right now. And usually I go to the woods five, six days a week with my dog. And so I would just like to say that I think that this is informing my reading because I was an unnamed kid at this lesson, unnamed Slytherin at this lesson. And my cheeks are cold and like red from being outside in the winter. You know that great yeah. feeling
0: where it you're is like the winter c- now. Yes.
2: Yeah. Where you're the it's, you know, it's around Christmas. And so it's like snowy. We know it's snowy. And so it's cold. And my nose is a little runny. There's that feeling too. And like I'm just watching the flesh get removed from this deer carcass. And I cannot see the thestrels. And it's just like. Oh my God, what is happening? And also I'm just so excited that I'm in the forest for my class and I'm smelling all of like the wet bark, you know, that like amazing tree smell in the winter. And it's just so like clear out, winter air is just like the clearest, cleanest air. And so it's just like beautiful. I can hear sort of like trees cracking under the weight of the snow and like falling. And I'm mesmerized by this like disappearing flesh. I'm very excited to be in these woods. Yeah,
1: Don't you love it when you go outside in the winter and like you take a deep breath and it gets like kind of crinkly in your nose because yes. it's so cold. And like, it's so like... It burns so good. Bracing. Yeah, it's so good. For me, I was very auditory. I think when I read this through the first time, I've never seen... The movie version of book five. And so I found myself wondering how they depicted this. Like, how did they depict some people being able to see the Thestrals and other people not being able to? And then I wondered about like, you know, how they animated the flesh being ripped off and then being consumed. Yeah, And also wondering, like, at what point down the gullet does it become part of the Thestral and not an independent piece of meat?
2: And like, can you see... The, like, breath coming out of their noses. Because, right. like, that's got to be, like, steamy breath. Right, because
1: at what point is your breath not yours anymore? So I was... That's what I was thinking as I read it the first time. But this time, as we did the sacred imagination practice, those questions of the visual didn't arise for me. It was very auditory. Like, I could hear yeah. the... S- The meat, like ripping from the flesh, you know that that sound like jerky makes when you pull jerky off the a piece of jerky from another piece of jerky. Maybe you don't. This is something you probably don't do very often, Vanessa. But you've been around people who do,
2: right? And like, (laughs) is it the same sound as separating fruit leather from fruit leather?
1: Yeah, maybe it's like or like ripping ripping a piece of cloth. Sure, I get it. And then and then also like hearing like the masticating, like the chewing, and like yeah, because I think that would have been part of the creepiness in that moment, if you could not see the Thestrals, and I'm imagining myself as a student who could not see the Thestrals, right, it would have partly been seeing the pieces of flesh like lift up and then be consumed, but also hearing that noise and hearing the chewing and the swallowing. Yeah, Like all those audio cues were like really registering for me as I read.
2: Yeah, and like watching the snow disappear under their hooves or like change, oh, yeah. right? Like I was just so excited about it all. <laughs> The woods are very exciting. Yeah. Peter has been sending me photos every day. He's so lovingly taking the dog on her hikes anyway. And he Mm. sends me a picture every day of this tree that the beavers have been working on.
1: Ooh, you have beavers?
2: We have beavers in our woods.
1: Whoa, that's awesome.
2: And finally, the tree fell. And it is a thestral like thing because he's he never sees the beavers right. Yeah. Yeah. He's just there every day, and the tree slowly it like started to look like a pencil. You know, it like got more and more narrow. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. That was so fun. Thanks for letting me that go to fun. the woods.
1: I was glad to be able to take you to the woods again.
2: The woods in winter, man, they're just magical.
3: So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.
1: Now we have a voice memo from Jamie. Just a warning to everyone that Jamie speaks about an abusive relationship in this voice memo. So if you'd like to skip ahead, move forward about two minutes.
3: Hi, this is Jamie. And I just wanted to respond to the Book 5, Chapter 18 episode about possibility. In it, you talk about Dobby and Winky and the difference between their two experiences. And I would like to give a blessing to Winky. A couple of years ago, I was in a very abusive relationship. Over the course of that relationship, I worked so so hard to try to mold myself into the person that would make my partner happy. Then my partner broke up with me. In that moment and in the days and months following it, I had a very hard time recovering for a lot of reasons, one of which was that as I started to see how abusive it had been I felt like I wasn't even good enough for somebody to abuse. Winky has never known a relationship where she's valued for who she is. Her whole worth for her whole life has been around caring for this family who has not cared for her. When her family cuts her off, she is left with no sense of self. It takes a whole lot of time and effort and work to recover when you are left without knowing who you are. I hope that Winky is given all of the love and support and resources that she needs to figure out who she is, and that she's lovable as herself, not just for what she offers to others. And I hope the same for anybody else who has been cut off by somebody who is treating them poorly.
2: Jamie, thank you so much for your voicemail. I think it is such a great framing on Winky. As we've talked about, I know ad nauseum, I just still don't know how to think about the house elves, but I think that you've contributed a really helpful addition in how to think about Winky, which is, yeah, I do think that she is an abuse victim and I'm glad that she has Dobby to take care of her, but also we are seeing a lot of her grief and pain in that.
1: Thank you for your voice memo, Jamie. I'm so sorry for, for what you went through and, and so glad that you survived. Um, and I'm so grateful for this reading of Winky that you've offered and for inviting us to a deeper understanding of what Winky is going through and what Winky is surviving.
2: It is now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost. Henry Rose was 96 and a public servant for economic fairness. France Baudry, who was 76, a loving grandmother and great-grandmother. Simon Raxel, who was 31, a son, brother, caregiver and friend. Johnny Smith, who was one day a nephew, son, and Piper's big brother. May their memories be a blessing to us all. Matt, we now offer blessings for characters in the chapter. Who would you like to bless this
1: week? I would like to Bless Professor McGonagall this week. At the end of the chapter, we didn't really get to talk about this much, but Harry has a terrifying vision of a person that he loves and respects and cares for deeply in the world, Arthur being grievously wounded. And he knows, just internally, he knows, even if he doesn't know why, he knows it's real and not a dream. He knows that this was an actual vision, not a kind of conjured imagination from his unconsciousness. And what he most needs in that moment is someone to believe him. And McGonagall, you know, we know that she has reason to believe him, but she just does. And she knows that the thing to say to him in that moment is, I believe you. Yeah. Right, that that what he needs is to be believed, to know that she supports and believes him, especially when in this book, from the beginning, so much of his fury and frustration is about people not believing him. McGonagall saying just those words, I believe you, let's go see the headmaster, That's what Harry needs to hear, and McGonagall just knows to say it. And so, yeah, blessing for McGonagall for believing Harry. Who are you blessing, Vanessa?
2: I would bet my bottom dollar that I gave a very similar blessing last time I read this chapter, but I can't help it, Matt. I need to bless Cho Chang. A quote from my favorite sitcom of all time, Mad About You, is that, People who kiss first are the bravest people in the world. And Cho Chang is 15 years old and she is having so many feelings and she like still goes and kisses Harry. I just think that feeling all of those feelings is so brave and that she knows exactly what she's doing and that it is complicated and... She's just like walking towards it anyway. And so I would like to bless Cho for her incredible emotional maturity, for her courage, and just for being an icon. Great blessing. Thank you. Next week, we'll be reading book five, chapter 22, St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries through the theme of individuality with a special guest, Mauricio Bruce. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks, everybody. We know that so many of you are incredible, talented writers, and so we have a publishing crash course with the incredible New York Times bestselling author Mackenzie Lee. And that will be February 17th through March 23rd. You can find out more about that at notsorryworks.com. And then we also have a group chaplaincy course called Showing Up for Trans Kids, which will be taught by Matt, I'm pretty sure one of your favorite former students, the great chaplain Taylor Bueller. And that will be running from March 8th to April 12th. And so you can find out more about both of those at notsorryworks.com.
1: This has been a Not Sorry Production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Caitlin Hoffmeister. We are edited and produced by AJ Yoramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisao and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Jamie for their voicemail. To Ariana Nettleman, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Terkyle, Natalie Fulkerts, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones this week.
2: Matt, you want you wanna start us? You want me to?
1: Why don't you start? Okay. Or I can start. I'm gonna start. Go ahead No you start. No you start. Hermione is your person. <laughs>